um, I, I, I have a 12 year old son who is very, very, very social. And so we have been really careful of creating a biosphere of other kids that are also not seeing others. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there was a, a, a new kid that we saw at the park and, um, you know, we were, we were totally away from other people. So we didn't have our masks on, but it led to this very surreal conversation that I had to have with the mom of basically, do you believe in science? We do. Life is a trip. No matter where you've been or where you're going, you might have more in common with someone on the other side of the world than you think. Let's go. Hi, everybody. Um, Welcome back to the podcast. This little intro here is, you know, just to speak towards these topics that have been super relevant in the last few weeks, as many of you may already know. I stand strong with the Black Lives Matter movement, and I definitely consider myself an ally. And for this reason, I took some time off from actually publishing content and just kind of wanted to give some space for, you know, Black voices and support that community during this really difficult time. So, yeah, I guess one of my priorities with the podcast now has just been to um, shift gears a little bit and speak to this topic, you know, just kind of prioritize uh, an episode that would basically address, you know, what's been on everyone's minds and hopefully shed some light on on this topic um, of Black Lives Matter and just help everyone, you know, learn a bit more about the history of this and particularly my audience that is from Germany because I know plenty of you guys are listening um, internationally here. So that's, you know, really great. I, I hope that this episode can educate you a little bit on what the movement is. Um, and it's a really long episode, but a really great episode, I think, to just sort of shed some light on this topic. Um, I have plenty of resources linked below, so I know it's a long episode. If you don't get to make it through all the way, do check out the resources that are linked below in the show notes. And yeah, thank you so much again for listening. And I really hope that um, you guys enjoy this episode. And please um, be patient with me as I (laughs) slowly will return to my regular content. But for now, this is definitely um, a priority for me. And as this is my podcast and my, my platform, I really wanted to make this a priority. So thank you guys again. Enjoy the episode and I'll catch you later. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Life's a Trip. It's your host, Gio, and today's guest is Professor Jody Bama. I teach political science in the United States, uh, California to be specific, and Southern California to be even more specific. Uh, So I am uh, for 20 years at Fullerton College teaching American government, California government, local politics, uh, and contemporary issues in American politics. So it's always interesting, but we've never had a year quite like 2020. I completely agree. So, I mean, there's so much we can dive into, but I guess uh, to start yeah. off, let's let's go with what's on everyone's minds, I would say right now, which is, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement. And maybe you can clarify a bit about what that is and like how that ended up becoming such a big topic right now in politics. Sure. I think um, like every a movement, it is more than the initial event. 
and anyone who has studied World War I can sort of question, why did anyone care about Archduke Franz Ferdinand to start you know, a, an international war? It's often the spark that lights the fire where gasoline has been poured for centuries. And that's what we're seeing here is this is the literal straw that broke the camel's back. Um, and so um, to watch it, you do sort of wonder why this moment? Um, why was this the perfect storm? Why not some of the other tens of hundreds of of moments that could have sparked it. And we don't know, but here we are. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, it's super it, powerful to see like the, you know, these, these videos and it's heart heartbreaking, especially for me being yes. an expat, like not being at home, but also I, I think it, a lot of people just feel so powerless in general, even if you yes. are in the United States, it's, it's really hard. Absolutely. And I think for anyone who's studied psychology and understands Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, I spoke a lot about this with my own students as we moved this past semester from in-person, on-campus classes to remote. And, mm -hmm. and we all sort of fell down a few rungs of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and we didn't feel secure. And some of that is, is certainly driving this anger, this hopelessness, um, the idea that we feel so unsafe, we feel so uncertain, and that anger has literally um, run into the streets. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it is a culmination of so many factors that we see out there. Um, and, and then to find each other, to find that there is support, to find that, that galvanizing emotion of feeling supported and, and propelling movement. And then to see it happen, to see actual um, reforms being made in live time. And things are moving very, very fast. Statues are falling down um, and, uh, you know, city councils, because really in, in the United States, we have a decentralized system of federalism where city governments govern our police. And so it is this very disconnected, decentralized system. It is not one national police force. Um, and so those decisions are being made on a local level all over the country because of these protests. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to compare it, you know, to other countries as well and, and how, you know, they've handled, you know, situations like this before, but especially, you know, to, to think about the First Amendment and all of these, you know, rights that we have as Americans and how we address, you know, these topics that have been, especially, you know, with what happened after slavery and, and the history of oppression that Black people face, like how that has played into just the ingrained in the culture and the society of the United States. And so it's just really, it's interesting to, to try to figure out if this actually, you know, works. That's, that was going to be like another question I wanted to ask you if, if you think like, you know, the, the protests and actually all of the people assembling in the streets, you know, that's something obviously part of our history. It was sort of how our country was founded, you know, but there right. are, there has been a lot of, um, you know, controversy around that and if that will actually even have an impact. And we are seeing an impact, as you mentioned, but I'd, I'd love for you to elaborate a bit more about that. Sure. In, in public administration and political science, we um, have the concept of that in, in crisis, there is opportunity, that a policy window opens 
um, you know, after 9-11, we get the Patriot Act because the, the Attorney General is ready with a package of criminal justice reforms that crack down on so many freedoms and liberties that we have. So uh, the, the, the reason that we are getting reform is because people who have been working on these issues for decades were ready for the moment to say what we need to do is focus on mental health services in our police force. Um, that when this moment happened, we need to change the name of institutions that are named for you know, slave owners, mm -hmm. that we need to change the military bases that are named after Confederate generals. Um, here in our small town of Fullerton in Orange County, um, we just saw the name of um, Lewis Plummer taken off the Plummer Auditorium oh, because wow. he was a known KKK member. Now, in, in Orange County, and, and you know, um, if you'd like to learn more about Sylvia Mendez and the Mendez versus Westminster case that was in Orange County, um, we had uh, a lot of housing restrictions that meant that people of color were not allowed to live in suburban neighborhoods like Orange County. So, it's interesting that the KKK of the 1920s in Orange County was actually not focused on race. It was focused on Catholicism. It was anti-Catholic, not because they wouldn't have been racist, but because they had already legally taken care of people of color not living in their neighborhoods. Mm. So the cross burnings um, in Fullerton were anti-Catholic. Lewis Plummer's KKK actions were anti-Catholic, um, and and I shouldn't say Lewis Plummer's that he was a member of the KKK. It was the KKK's actions um, that were um, anti-Catholic. We don't have historical records of his actions, and I don't want to, you know, um, conflate that membership. But um, yeah, that's sort of interesting in our own history. We're seeing that. So all over the country, there are people who have been waiting for people to pay attention. Um, you know, public defenders have joined this fight. Public defenders are attorneys who are hired by the, the, the court system to defend as part of our American government um, system. Uh, and they have, you know, clearly been on the front lines of the institutional racism that takes place in our court system. Um, and they have been talking about the, the reforms that we need there all over all over the country, people are saying, you know, um, what we need to reform. So that's mm -hmm. what the movement allows is what we call agenda setting in the media, the idea that people are finally paying attention, that, you know, I have been talking about the incredible problems in the criminal justice system for as long as I've been teaching, and people don't really pay attention because crime is bad and we should punish criminals mm -hmm. is usually the answer. And then when you dive deep and you pull the cover back and realize how many systemic problems. And, and for those of your listeners who, you know, are, are new to this and kind of getting this crash course that we're all getting in social science, um, there don't have to be any racists involved for systemic racism to occur. So we're not saying that every prosecutor or every judge or every juror in a case is racist for there to be racist outcomes. Mm -hmm. Totally. 
I think that also ties into, you know, I mean, in general, like racism and, and people do, like they generally don't have, I think, an idea of what that means and, and how that is, like I mentioned earlier, tied into the, the entire you know, history of, of the United States as a country and how that does oppress people of color above others, you know. So I would love to also dive into, um, you know, this whole idea of defunding the police as well as the prison system in the United States and how, you know, there is this, um, I think it's called prison industrial complex. And if you can yeah. maybe define that a bit more for listeners. Yeah. And um, the, the documentary 13th uh, is a really great documentary to um to, to stream it's available many places i'm sure mm-hmm. um and and that kind of talks about the transfer from the civil war when slavery ended with the 13th amendment which is the reference in the title um to how the prison system really has taken the place of that and in louisiana um prisoners are actually as a benefit allowed to work in the governor's mansion and the court system. And so you have these stark images of um, the, the, the good behavior of prisoners being rewarded by getting to work inside the mansion. And if that isn't reminiscent of the house slaves versus the farm slaves of slavery, I, I, I don't know how much more we can compare these two systems um, where, you know, even um, Amy Carter, uh, when she was the daughter of then Jimmy Carter, the, the, the governor of Georgia before he was president, um, her, her nanny was uh, uh, from the prison system working in the governor's mansion. Wow. Um, you just think that how far we haven't come. And, and it's interesting because I, during January, if you can imagine that the year 2020 is, you know, not even halfway over and um, January seems a lifetime ago when the impeachment of President Donald Trump was occurring. And I dove deep into uh, a great book by Brenda Wineapple called The Impeachers, Mm -hmm. which is about the trial of Andrew Johnson and the dream of a just nation. And, you know, clearly I had lived through the impeachment of Bill Clinton, but hadn't spent a lot of time the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. And it was fascinating for the impeachment story, but what really drew me to the book was how incredibly um, we screwed up, the country of America messed up Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. That instead of taking um, the, the time to heal a nation, to mediate the radical reconstruction with the assassination of Abraham Lincoln left us in the hands of Andrew Johnson, who was fully incapable of having that national movement. And we've seen countries that have done it right. I mean, I think Germany really took a hard look after the Holocaust, after World War II, to say never again. Um, Mm -hmm. South Africa, after apartheid, where they had a whole reconciliation movement um america did not do that and we stuck a band-aid on it and we said it's over and we did not heal we made promises that we broke um which is a recurring theme in america and the indigenous people can tell you all about broken contracts and broken promises 
but that I think really is the cause, the original sin of the country. And we never healed when we had the chance to, mm-hmm. to, to take that. Um, and so we have all of these, um, these wounds uh, that have never healed and systems in place that have never been dismantled. So your question about defunding police, because I do remember that you asked that before I want, uh, took you on a little journey. Um, defunding the police um, is, uh, you know, one of those hashtags that sort of took off and needs to be defined and clarified. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as an educator, I will tell you, uh, education has been defunded time after time after time. It doesn't mean we don't exist. It just means we have less money. Um, so I, I think that the vast majority of folks are not talking about dismantling police forces. The vast majority of people are not talking about abolishing police forces. But um, I'll I'll give you an example from the firefighting. Uh, When you actually look at uh, city government in the United States, um, the vast majority of the money goes to public safety. And we um, spend a lot of money on firefighters and we spend a lot of money on police. And that's good and valid. That's one of the roles of the city. But when you actually analyze, when you take a look at the statistics of firefighting calls, 85% of all firefighting calls are for health care. It's for heart attacks. We are sending a fire truck for what should be an ambulance call yeah. because we have a broken health care system. And we have really great technology that has reduced the number of fires that we have. We no longer have wood structures that don't have sprinklers. We have, you know, uh, um, building codes. We have earthquake and fire safety built in. So very few buildings spontaneously combust and just burn down. (laughs) So we are spending a tremendous amount of money when we could have EMTs that are in cars with healthcare facilities providing those cares. So then when you pivot and say, okay, what are most calls for police? And are they equipped to deal with it? And when you look at a system that doesn't have universal healthcare, when you look at a system that doesn't have mental health services provided, when you look at a system that Um, you know, has economic inequality that leads to fear and insecurity. Um, When you look at a system that has addiction and homelessness, food insecurity, many of the calls are for domestic violence, for child abuse. I don't know that a police force um, motivated to catch criminals can properly be trained to de-escalate violence to counsel mental health issues. Um, I think that we've seen that time and time again, that police are not trained. Um, and, and, and I certainly know my lane as an educator when I have a student in crisis, I need to turn to mental health professionals. Um, and police don't have that. They are asked to go out on the front lines. And so when we're talking about defunding the police. We're talking about taking a budget that spends the majority of tax dollars on public safety and reallocating that money. 
It's not a great hashtag, though. My five-minute yeah. answer. So I mean, it's great. Yeah, I mean, that breakdown was really, really helpful, I think, because I, I completely agree. I think the hashtag threw me off as well when I first Sure, it. yeah. I was like, what it is that? It turns out that complicated public policy doesn't make great hashtags. Yeah. And it doesn't make great social media. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult because social media wants to reduce um, and, and divide every issue into binary choices. Are you pro-life or pro-choice? Well, what if you want fewer unwanted pregnancies and better social services for those children that are born? That's not a choice. Mm -hmm. So social media and hashtags are not helpful for this public discourse. Right. I mean, and that because of that, I think, um, like my generation itself as millennials and then other generations coming into obviously sure. going into college I've now. Got Gen Z kids exactly. <laughs> and those, yeah. you know, those people approaching like the whole college and university um, atmosphere and climate, you know, they're they're coming from this sort of yeah, like only two options type of perspective that yeah. comes from social media. And also like just a constant bombardment of different types of media. So I'm curious how you approach um, racism as a topic itself and also having these, you know, binaries and these um, two opposing views that we often see, which are, you know, Republicans versus Democrats, in, you know, especially within Orange County. Yeah, in, in <laughs> our, yeah, in our American political system of two choices, uh, it, it does um, amplify that binary choice mm-hmm. that you are either for us or against us. And it becomes, and we have seen that in the last 20, 40 years, it has become very tribal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I am old enough to remember a time when I did not know who people voted for. Uh, that seems to be the first introduction. And, and, and I'm sort of taken back. I, I went to grad school with an international student who was from uh, Kenya, and she spoke of the idea that it was very strange. You know, there, there are always cultural um, things that strike you as very different when you travel. And, and, and so one of them was she had no idea why we needed 56 types of peanut butter, um, you know, in the store. It was just overwhelming the idea that you needed that many choices. And, yeah. and the level of chunkiness was yeah. overwhelming. Um, but the second thing was when she went to a restaurant and the, the servers would introduce themselves by their first name. Um, and it was something very strange to her because she spoke of you know, at, at the age of three or four, she would introduce herself not only with her last name, but with her ancestry. And that the reason she would be able to go back five, six, seven, eight generations in her patriarchal line was because when she met somebody, she said, when I met a stranger, I needed to identify if our tribes were friendly or not. Hmm. So it was a tribal idea and clearly no longer based on tribes, but still that idea of the socialization that she was introduced to was, I will know whether or not we should be friends today based on whether our forefathers were friends or members of the same tribe, that I will carry your load if 18 generations back we were related. And so now we have this tribal division based on Republican or Democrat that 
if you wear a red hat that says make America great again, I can discard you and discount anything you say, Mm -hmm. even if we would agree on 80% of the things. So those tribal divisions are really difficult because it makes it hard in our society to care for one another during a pandemic. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And it's funny you mentioned that because, I mean, obviously as an expat, I can relate to like seeing the differences when I moved to Germany. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, and (laughs) and that's part of the fun. That's part of the fun of your podcast is kind of those differences of (laughs) you you only notice those things. And and it's why travel is so incredible, Mm -hmm. is that you learn so much about yourself when you are in a different place. Exactly. And and going back to what you said, like, also, this, this is really funny, actually, just the other day, we had um, a local election, and I'm not like German, so I didn't vote, obviously, sure. but all of my neighbors went to vote together, because it was just around the corner. And it was just a city election. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I asked my boyfriend who I, I asked some of them, because we're all friends. I was like, yeah, so who'd you guys vote for? And, and I was curious, you know, but they did yeah. not want to talk about it. They were like, no, we sure. don't. That. And I was like, what? Right. But that, right. that was shocking. The secret ballot. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. I was, you know, really surprised because I'm used to everyone flaunting like who they voted for, especially on social media yeah. and which right. party they are, you know, supporting. And I don't know. It's it's very interesting <laughs> comparing. The it two. is. It yeah. is. And I and I fear that we are approaching um, that idea of of those being tribal lines that that can't cross. Mm. Um, and there are so many mixed families um, of Republicans and Democrats, um, and 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 I belong to one. You know, um, we have uh, it, when my children were very upset on election night in 2016, um, and and I said, you know, well, Christmas is coming, and you might not want to mention that when <laughs> we see my relatives. <laughs> Because they are going to be very happy with the outcome. And not necessarily that they were Trump supporters, but certainly they had very big concerns about Hillary Clinton. And that becomes the problem. Mm -hmm. So many people voted not for Donald Trump, but against Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. So many people voted not for Hillary Clinton, but against Donald Trump. And, and and, and And that becomes an issue. Um, and I think a lot of young people are rejecting that idea that they will have to vote for the Democrat that they do not like. Right. And that's, I think, um, a follow-up thing that I wanted to mention now is like, how do you think um, that has affected, I guess, let's let's start with, you know, the 2016 election. Now that we're coming up to the, the next election, how do you think that outcome has, you know, sort of impacted the United States having Trump as a president? And then what do you see as, you know, the next outcome because of the candidates we're facing right. now? <laughs> right. Well, um, you know, as a, as a political scientist, I will say it's not over until the conventions officially nominate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, although it is a foregone conclusion that both Donald Trump and Joe Biden will be their respective national parties nominees, um, that actually happens during the political party conventions this summer. Mm. However, uh, I'm pretty sure nothing's going to change. So uh, I think that a lot of the anger we're seeing uh, is because of the president uh, and, and the just kind of the cultural shift that we've seen of the norms of what's acceptable for a president to say and to tweet. Um, <laughs> yeah. And 
I mean, just the volume of tweets. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I sort of joked uh, the other day that if my child was tweeting as much as the president of the United States, I would be concerned for her mental health. Yeah. Um, and she doesn't have a full-time job. So the, the vitriol, the viciousness is permeating through our society. And again, some of that is just situational. People are tired of being... Uh, stuck at home, they're tired of not being able to have their normal lives, but they're also just so angry. And I feel that that has been empowered by this president's rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I don't know where we go for, from here. I don't know if you put that proverbial genie back in the bottle. Um, do we go back to um, an, an era of professionalism and niceness. Um, I know there are a lot of folks, you know, protesting in the streets that are talking about that the politics of respectability is no longer um, working. And so they will be angry and, and not accepting of things. And whew, kindness goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we do, politics aside, have to live and work with each other. And, and I think that some of my best discussions have been with people with whom I disagree. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I mean, if we can also dive into that, like whole aspect of Trump almost being a symbol for, I guess, the left, um, a lot of people see him as a symbol of, you know, racism and the rhetoric is pushing that racist agenda. But I've also heard, um, you know, more neutral opinions from my friends even who are like, well, we can't really blame it all on Trump. And in a way, I do agree with that because obviously you can't put the blame of racism on one person's back. Right. But I would love to know what you think about, you know, how how Trump's actions do uh, empower groups like the KKK and like, you know, this MAGA youth right. that you see that right. are kind of yeah, know, terrorizing think, people. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think when you look at the demographic future of mm-hmm. America, it is so clearly, um, uh, you know, that the... the, the, the it, it is so clearly going to be a multi-racial, diverse, um, accepting, loving, more equal nation. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I believe that Trump represents the almost um, last gasp of power of a shrinking majority of white supremacists that they can see very clearly you know, California is a state that is what we call majority minority, which means that when you look at the ethnic breakdown of the population, a majority of the people who live here are not white. That is not true in the nation as a whole. There's still a majority of whites. And in some states, a state like Wyoming, um, which has fewer people in it, Uh, than just the city of Anaheim where Disneyland is and the city of Fullerton nearby. So two relatively small towns in Southern California are larger than Wyoming, an entire state. But that state is 98% white. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Iowa and Vermont and New Hampshire, states that are relatively small, Iowa and New Hampshire are politically powerful because they go first in our very strange selection of the president. Um, They are almost 97 or 98% white. 
So California is one of the, the more diverse states, Texas and New Mexico, Hawaii, other states that are very diverse. But voters are still incredibly white. And that's not because white people vote more than other folks, but it's because our socialization process um, is that the older you are, the more likely you are to vote. And old people in California are still majority white. Uh, 72% of the seniors in California over the age of 65 are white. Uh, So when old people vote, white people vote. Mm -hmm. So that will change. That will be a transition, but already we're seeing more and more um, voter outreach in California to people of color. We're seeing more diverse candidates, which of course gets more voters excited. It's nice to see people who look like you on the ballot. It's nice to see people who look like you and from your community come and ask you for your vote. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing that change. But in places like Georgia, in places like Arkansas, it's easy to hold on to that power, not through registering more people to vote, but in a state like Georgia, simply changing the rules to disenfranchise, to take the right to vote away from people of color. And so we're seeing that. I have a a, a childhood friend who is now in Georgia and was on the ballot for a state house race Mm -hmm. in 2018. And I donated money and I supported her because she's brilliant and should be in charge of everything. Um, (laughs) But I was talking to Shay Roberts and, you know, Stacey Abrams was pretty exciting to look as a candidate for the governor of the state of Georgia. And I said, oh my gosh, how is it going? And she said, we just got the polling back and I'm only 5% ahead. And I said, I feel like 5% ahead is really good. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, there's so much voter suppression that if you're not 7%, 8%, 9% ahead, you're going to lose the election. There's so much fraud that they knew that just being 5% ahead was going to be a loss. And that's how Stacey Abrams lost and a whole slate of Democrats lost the election. And so these white supremacists who are empowered by Trump know that they can't do that in 20 years. The voters will be too large. Those seniors who are overwhelmingly white will no longer be with us. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And more and more young people um, are, are hopefully I hope at these protests, learning the power of local politics, learning that it is not the national government that hires their police force, but their city council members. And so not only do they need to vote, they need to run for office. They need to have a seat at the table. And as that happens, we see this um, grasp of power. And and of course, that old quote that um, equality feels like oppression when all you've known is privilege. So those great-grandchildren of Reconstruction who joined the KKK because they were taken out of power, they were not, after the Civil War, allowed to, as treasonous Americans who had taken an oath to the Confederate States of America, they were not allowed to hold office. They were not allowed to be elected. And that led them to form the KKK 
because they felt powerless and they wanted to hold that power as white supremacists to patrol. And so a lot of police forces come from those vigilante, racist, roaming protectors that lynched and killed those newly elected black leaders. Um, those descendants are feeling that powerless. And instead of having a healing discussion, having social discourse of how can we all share that, you know, civil rights are not like pie, there's enough for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, we can share. And sharing power does not take power away from you. It actually, you know, in a matriarchal sense, sharing power empowers everyone. It lessens the burden. When you look at internationally, but certainly in the United States, um, the suicide rates for um, baby boomer white men are off the charts because they feel so much pressure. They were raised and socialized to believe that they should be the economic provider of their family. Mm -hmm. And the economic inequality is so hard for them to be able to provide that it used to be really great book by, uh, um, uh, and I'm forgetting his name right now, but Robert Putnam, a sociologist who wrote a book called Our Kids. And it talks about the sociological changes in our economy and social structures that it's very difficult for a blue collar man to provide the lifestyle for his family that his father or grandfather did easily. So this economic structure, the social structure, isn't good for white people either. Mm -hmm. But it feels like an attack. And so when we can't have these conversations, when we can't have social discourse, um, it feels like something is being taken away. And that is certainly being, you know, exacerbated by social media, by the bots from, you know, Russia that are reveling in the division in our social structure. Um, you know, I think Putin is celebrating his delayed victory of the Cold War. Who knew he didn't have to buy a single weapon? He could have just waited for Facebook. Um, <laughs> that is certainly part of it. So I think it would be easy and actually kind of hopeful that racism would go away with Trump, that our nation would heal. I don't have that hope. I think that all of those systems that did not remove him when impeachable offenses were clear Mm -hmm. um, his allies in the Senate. Um, we had a couple of Supreme Court cases that gave me hope mm -hmm. that the Supreme Court is not yet fully in his pocket. Um, but I don't, I don't know. So many of the federal judges that have been appointed in the last three and a half years are Trump loyalists. Um, I, don't, I don't know what a post-Trump America looks like. And I certainly don't know what a post-Trump Republican Party looks like. Where do those racists go? Where do those white supremacists that have been empowered um, and put front and center go when I imagine the Republican Party will want to disavow themselves from Trump when inevitably he 
leaves. I don't know if that will be soon. Mm-hmm. And I honestly fear, I don't know if the Republic can survive a second Trump administration. Right. I've heard the same thing. And I mean, also, like you mentioned before, um, a lot of people want to see themselves represented on the ballot. But it's like you said, there is like voter suppression. And also, I've heard, you know, voter fraud happens, all of these things that we've heard with the Trump administration in general. Like, yeah, it, it would be interesting to hear your perspective about, you know, why did we end up with still like pretty much, you know, even Sanders is, is a contender, I guess, or was a contender. People are still really fighting for Sanders. But, you know, in the end, it's still three white men, you know, <laughs> so it's kind of unfortunate and, yeah. and it and makes you feel powerless really again. Old white men. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, that's a factor when you think that both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in 2016 would have been, regardless of the outcome, the oldest elected person to be president, that we thought, you know, someone in their late 60s was incredibly old when Ronald Reagan was elected back in 1980. And Mm. now we are looking at someone who is almost 80 on the ballot. Joe Biden is 78 years old. Um, That is really old. Um, And listen, my dad is just a little bit older than that. And I love him dearly. um, And he is incredibly wise. But he should not be president. And he would be the first to tell you that. Um, So I do wonder how it is with the most diverse Um, you know, ballot that I have ever seen with 24 Democratic candidates vying for the chance uh, to be the Democratic nominee. How in the world did we end up with the last three old white men standing? Um, And political scientists are going to be studying and diving into that voter data for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that Uh, Much the same way I look back at 2016, there was a moment in time where there were three other candidates that were dividing the Republican vote amongst themselves, while Donald Trump was pretty solidly getting 30 or 40 percent of the vote and never won uh, those primary elections outright in Republican states. But because Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and John Kasich um, were all in the race, they divided the vote amongst themselves. I wonder um, if it had been Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren early on as the two choices, if, if it would have been Joe Biden. Um, there is still massive sexism um, that exists in our electorate. Um, some of that socialized, uh, that people don't see a woman as being a potential president. Um, you know, and, and again, most other countries are ahead of us. Um, And whether it's a parliamentary system or a presidential system, um, you know, certainly um, proportional representation where there are multiple parties helps. Um, Our two-party system makes it very difficult. But um, the the attacks that were leveled against the female candidates were, you know, very, very gendered um, and certainly would not have been and weren't um, leveled against the men. So that was a factor. And then clearly the, the candidates of color, I think, um, were held to a ridiculously high standard. 
um, that that other candidates have not been and were not held to. So we have a long way to go in having really honest discussions about how campaigns um, and the media, um, particularly the media, um, really reinforce those really um, gendered and race-based, um, uh, 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 you know, criticisms. And, and then I also believe that the voters um, suffer from um, can- cancel culture, the idea that if there is one um, bad decision in a candidate's uh, past that they are not going to support them in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know what you do with that. These candidates are human uh, and have complicated uh, work history oftentimes. And that in your role as a prosecutor, if you're looking at Amy Klobuchar or Kamala Harris, there are certain expectations um, and that we want women to be tough on crime to prove that they are not weak um, but then we don't want them to be um, too tough on crime. Right. So there, there's a lot of difficulty in how we discount um, difficult decisions in candidates' past. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I mean, one argument I've heard from um, a lot of Germans actually is that the United States is too big of a country and that that's the reason why it's always going to be complicated. <laughs> it, yeah, 300, 310 million people. Um, that's a lot. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I have spent uh, not, not, not a, just a few moments thinking, um, you know, California's got 40 million people. That's a nice nation size. Mm-hmm. Um, Governor Gavin Newsom during the pandemic often referred to our state as a nation state. And I thought, hmm, uh, California seems like a pretty good country. Uh, the California legislators often boast that if our economy was separate from the rest of the nation, we would be the fifth largest nation in the world um, economically. Wow. And I do sort of think... Um, Maybe America is ready for a divorce. Maybe. <laughs> and, you know, the past um, few weeks have been sort of strange on that, where cancel culture and choices, um, J.K. Rowling was, you know, uh, in, in the hot seat for her really unfortunate statements about transgender. Mm-hmm. Um, and NASCAR decided to ban the Confederate flag. And so I was thinking, wow, um, who would have guessed that in the nation's divorce, uh, the left would get NASCAR and the right would get Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good and I'm sure I didn't come one. up with that. I'm sure I read that somewhere. <laughs> but um, I, I just thought, oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that we should be one nation. Yeah. Um, and I sometimes wonder in reading the, bo- the book, The Impeachers, um, whether we should have simply um, ended the war and had two nations, and that perhaps the Confederate States of America um, would now be um, a very different place if they had had to exist on their own, mm-hmm. um, and that at some point that brokered uh, a deal would have been better than the Band-Aid solution. You know, I feel like we are suffering from um, a, a wound that never healed, and we either have sepsis or gangrene. And I don't know whether medicine will heal us or whether we should just amputate. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely an interesting thing to consider, especially with this year. Who knows yeah. like what the yeah. next year will be like, if anything will change. Right. But right. yeah, definitely like 
you know, referring to what you said about, you know, COVID and, and the pandemic itself, like, I'd love to dive into that and how the U.S. handled it um, and sort of like the global impact that it sort of had as, as a country because of the way sure. we handled it. Um, yeah, so I was teaching American government as we went remote and really felt like, you know, this is a master class in American government. Um, we are going to spend a lot less time on the curriculum that I had planned. Um, I felt very much that um, higher education was um, almost like uh, 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 boarding the Titanic, that I handed out my syllabus, my course outline, and said, we are going to travel to New York on this beautiful boat, and here's what we'll serve every night for dinner, and you'll dine with the captain in your beautiful gowns. And then um, halfway through the semester, we hit an iceberg, and I uh, got all of my students into the lifeboat, and I said, throw your gowns overboard, and we are going to get to safety, mm -hmm. and we are no longer going to New York. And one of the things that we spent a lot of time with my students and I was um, every day looking at the nation's response, um, international responses. Um, clearly, some countries were ahead of us on the pandemic timeline, and that gave us a peek into our future. Uh, and we had some really good examples of countries that I think handled it incredibly well. Um, and Vietnam is a superstar. Um, I don't uh, I, I don't envy their autocratic nature, uh, mm -hmm. but I certainly uh, envy their pandemic response. New Zealand um, with uh, incredible, incredible response and very low rate. Um, now, that, you know, islands have an advantage uh, and we certainly see, you know, Hawaii sort of doing the same as one of the states. Mm -hmm. So that international response of watching Italy, um, you know, just tragically suffer through such um, terrible numbers um, at the beginning. Um, and, then, and then New York, because in this, you know, incredibly large nation, population density certainly had a big impact. Mm -hmm. um, we have some very rural counties in California that, um, you know, sort of laughingly told us that they had been physically and socially distancing for their entire um, lives because they <laughs> live pretty far apart from all other people. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, they've had better responses. So New York, and, and certainly we saw um, Governor Cuomo, uh, you know, taking a very um, crisis management when we, when we sort of study uh, crisis management, you need a centralized response. And New York had that with their governor. Other governors have not taken that role and sort of been very, um, either absent or abdicating their responsibility. In California, we're seeing the backlash of that, that Governor Newsom had incredibly high numbers at the very beginning. People felt that his leadership um, kept us safe. Mm -hmm. uh, but the legislature uh, would like to be back in charge. And so now they are sort of railing against some of his oversteps. Uh, you know, um, President Trump obviously was enjoying the attention of his daily briefings, but, uh, you know, has retreated back to tweeting. <laughs> so, um, it, yeah, the, the story of the pandemic response is sort of interesting. And now many people are, um, you know, trying to reopen and clearly the economic impact can't be discounted. That has a very real, um, uh, you know, complication for the mental and social and economic health 
of our communities. Um, there are lots of facilities and businesses that were closed that were really essential um, and probably could have figured out a way to do so safely that were just shut down in, in the immediate response. We're, we're now trying to navigate how to do that safely. There are some, and, and certainly every country is dealing with this, um, we are not unique in trying to imagine, you know, how do we ever go back to um, uh, crowded theaters or right. sporting events where we're, you know, thousands of people in an auditorium. Um, higher education is certainly doing that with large lecture halls. How, how is that going to look? Um, you know, our, our primary and, and secondary um, schools are certainly dealing with how does that look in the fall? We're currently in our summer break because, you know, <clears throat> we have an agrarian calendar based on the agriculture harvest of the East Coast that we still abide by. So this very long summer break that we have. Um, but all, all of that is, is coming. Um, Orange County this past week went national for our um, protesters against science yeah, um, I wanted to a ask public you about that. health agency. Yeah, <laughs> um, it was very strange to um, my, my husband actually worked for the healthcare agency of Orange County for you know about sixteen years, and so he's very um, familiar with a lot of these individuals who mm. are being attacked. Um, and he said it was very surreal to be driving to work, listening to Howard Stern, and hear him talk about the you know Dr. Chow, the the, the healthcare agency director. Um, mm -hmm. who is being attacked by people who don't believe in science um, and don't want to wear masks, that believe their constitutional rights and their civil liberties are <laughs> being restricted by being asked to wear masks. And you compare that to a country, you know, um, like China, where people just out of kindness and consideration wear a mask when they are feeling ill right. and are forced to go out. Um, yeah. <laughs> so our social contract is broken. Yeah. Yeah, it's insane. I, I saw photos of the Huntington yeah. Beach protesters saying, my yes. body, my choice. And Oh, uh, the irony is not yeah. lost on us. Yes. So that was really interesting. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just, I'm kind of happy that I'm in Germany, I have to say, because yes. I don't know if I yes. could even go outside with what's going on. It's, it's very strange. And, um, you know, just on a very, uh, you know, on a very personal level, it, it, it causes individual conversations that I never thought I would have to have. Um, I, I, I have a 12 year old son who is very, very, very social. And so we have been really careful of creating a biosphere of other kids that are also not seeing others. Mm -hmm. um, but but there was a, a a new kid that we saw at the park, and um, you know we were we were totally away from other people, so we didn't have our masks on. But it led to this very surreal conversation that I had to have with the mom of basically, do you believe in science? <laughs> we do, because I am comfortable with him, you know, tossing a football back and forth. 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet away for, with a kid, but not if they have been at the Huntington Beach protests. Right. Not if they are willfully, you know, going to a, a Trump rally um, unmasked. Um, there was a, a protester who at the, at the Orange County Board of Supervisors, as they are, you know, leveling death threats, our, our public health director, um, a scientist uh, and a doctor was forced to resign 
because she was getting death threats. People had found out her home address and were protesting on her front yard with signs of her as Hitler. Oh my gosh. Because she said that masks would keep people safe. Yeah. They did the same with Newsom. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So this one protester that got picked up by now this, which, you know, takes things viral. Mm. Um, He was probably in his seventies himself and he brought his 90, 95 year old father who fought in world war two to a public health meeting surrounded by other people who deny science to say that he fought in World War II. And I thought you could have brought a picture of him. You could have made the same point and you brought him not only out of his house where he should be social distancing, where he should be protected because he is high risk. And when you look at the numbers of those who have died in Orange County, it is primarily seniors. Mm -hmm. The idea that he is willing to risk his father's life to make a point about liberty is absurd to me. Gosh. And that is the, the very strange place we find ourselves in. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't imagine what other countries are thinking of us. <laughs> but yeah. every time, you know, we, we change a travel advisory and don't let people in, I'm sure those people, uh, you know, are thinking, thank you. We didn't want to go right now. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. And, and so California is looking to lose um, $2 billion in travel um, money that, of people who are either not going to come to this country or, uh, you know, uh, uh, folks from around the country who will not come uh, to this state right. because it, it's, they don't want to get on a plane, most likely, and, and they will stay local. Um, you know, travel in a car is a lot easier to control your interactions Mm-hmm. than not knowing who is going to be sitting next to you on a plane. Right. And now that we're heading into summer, I'm sure that's that's a huge discussion, right, for California of being like such a tourist spot. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it's very strange to consider what does summer look like without um, summer camps, without travel, without the beach, without, tra- uh, you know, tourism, um, you know, I was just looking back at all of my summer Disneyland pictures. Um, and, and so many of my students worked there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a really great place to get a lot of hours during summer. Um, right. You know, all those grad nights that were canceled as our graduations w- were affected by the pandemic. And Disneyland is a tradition um, for Southern California students. And, and in fact, for I, I was born and raised in the Central Valley of the state, and we got on a bus, I think, at four o'clock in the morning to come down to Disneyland for our senior class trip. Um, so it is a tradition that certainly billions of dollars were lost yeah, um, because of all of the travel that is not taking place. Yeah. And has Disneyland actually reopened? It hasn't. It is scheduled to reopen in July, and right now um, the union um, uh, workers are actually petitioning the governor to not allow that to happen because they do not feel that they will be safe. Mm-hmm. And when you look at, um, this is kind of the complicating factor of this tribe of 
science deniers that if the people who are most likely to go to a crowded place are the least likely to take precautions, it puts our young people of color who work at Disneyland and the surrounding resorts, the restaurants that serve those people, the, you know, um, Uber drivers, the, 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 you know, shared uh, Lyft and Uber that would drive people to Disneyland because parking is so expensive. So lots of people often use that. Mm -hmm. Those people who are most likely to go are those who are the least likely to be taking precautions to keep our employees safe. And our, our workers then, the people who live in Anaheim, are the most likely to live in high-density apartments with families with high-risk conditions. Right. So, you know, it's one thing if you have somebody who's living alone taking that risk because... The argument, of course, is, well, you know, we still haven't had somebody 18 to 24 die from COVID in Orange County. Yeah, exactly. Okay, probably less likely, probably likely to get it, to be exposed to it, to be a carrier, but likely not to be a, a fatal disease for them. However, um, that's one thing if it's you individually. It is another if you then carry it to your grandparents who are living in the house with you in a multi-generational living environment or the young brother or sister who has asthma and this is a respiratory illness mm -hmm. and what I'm interested to see the science because of course vaping has been incredibly popular um, among young people and I'm interested to see whether uh, there is scientific correlation between um, vapors and those who have more serious complications because of um, the virus. I, I don't yet know, um, but that's right. been my hypothesis that if you have compromised lungs um, from smoking or vaping, that you might be more susceptible. Um, and so I cautioned my students who um, have that habit to be very, very careful. Yeah. So I don't know, um, but it is the grocery store workers and the retail workers, the, you know, the staff that are serving at restaurants and um, now amusement parks or, um, or stores that are the most susceptible on the front lines um, and, and who will have to then make sure those precautions are taken. And I don't know if their employers will protect them. Yeah, that's the other thing I've heard so much um, from friends of mine that were already unhappy in their jobs and right. had to like, you know, either relocate because of, um, I had one friend who had to move somewhere else because they, their um, landlord could not afford to keep them there actually. So they, it wasn't yeah. even their fault. They had to just move. Right. Because, yeah. The landlord just couldn't um, right. rent that out to them. And, and, and we have um, normally very little social safety net. Mm -hmm. Um. And so to suddenly have the federal government provide unemployment, um, there are a lot of folks who are unemployed who are actually making more now with federal unemployment um, than they will make when they go back. Exactly. That's now, clearly, the federal government will turn that lever off oh, yeah. <laughs> and say, you will go back because the money stops. Mm. But that is going to be really emotionally difficult to realize that the federal government could provide a social safety net 
and chooses not to because they want you to go back to work. Right. So that they can have their tortilla chips and margaritas. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the economy itself of the U.S. is so like, it's crazy, the, the balance yeah. that has to be maintained. And yeah. that's what's that's why I think for people in Germany, it's such a shock to them when I tell them we don't have yes. universal health care or when they read about that or when they read about gun right. control that we, we don't have right. enough of and the police brutality. And, uh, you know, there's a, a huge list. And I don't know, like, I, I can't really answer their questions as to why that is still an issue. Like, I have no idea why yeah. like, we haven't changed it. <laughs> so I have a whole lecture about why we can't have nice things. Yeah, I'm and sure. <laughs> the answer is often our cultural value of individualism and our economic system of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And capitalism, of course, you can see many, 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 many examples in international um, countries. Um, that that don't have this toxic result. But we have a, a system that is based on individualism. And then we also, going back to slavery, a capitalist system that had to divide whites and blacks. Mm -hmm. Because clearly, when you look at countries that had slave rebellions, Haiti, for instance, white slave owners knew that they had to have the support of poor whites mm -hmm. because the vast majority of people didn't own slaves. It was a fairly expensive proposition. Um, so there were privileged whites and poor whites. And to make sure that the poor did not join together, capitalism introduced division of individualism and the ranking system of you may be poor but you're better than the black people who are poor the irish the italians the the you know the the, the immigration waves from europe mm -hmm. of the 20th century that pit one another against each other really starts to show the effectiveness of capitalism using individualism to divide. And so, you know, when, when I show my students the chart of the countries that do not offer national maternity leave and every other nation except four nations have some sort of maternity leave. And why is that? A, a, you know, a, a system that proclaims family values, that the children are our future. It's difficult to find a politician who won't pose in a campaign ad with small children looking mm -hmm. adoringly up at them. Um, it's because we divide and say, you are on your own. And for reasons I really don't understand when we had a, a corporate system that, you know, the, the old mining towns where not only your health care was dependent on your employer, but your house, mm -hmm. your store, you didn't get paid 
in actual currency. You got paid in script that could be used at the store that the company owned and the company owns your house. And when your husband tragically died in a mine accident because there weren't proper safety measures, you not only lost your husband provider income, you lost your house and your health care. At some point, we got away from that. We said, you know, it's not a good idea for your boss to own your house. But we kept the employer-based health care. So now when you are unemployed, you don't just lose your job, you lose your health care. When you want to have a child, you are relying on the maternity benefit of your employer because we don't provide one. And, and, it, and it's counterintuitive. When you look at a country like Italy or Germany or some of the European countries that have really robust um, art and entrepreneurship, the reason for that, the reason you can be a self-owned business, that you can be a, a, an independent artist, is because you don't have to provide for your own health care. Mm-hmm. You have a social safety net that says, yes, take a risk, start your own business. The irony is that America believes that we are great for entrepreneurship, that we're great for self-made business, but there is a cost to that. And the cost is that you have to be able to not be having kids because you won't have maternity leave, you'll lose your health care, you can't have a pre-existing condition. You can't have high prescription cost. So that individualism that says you're on your own, combined with capitalism that rewards businesses that do not provide for their employees, means that all of this is intertwined. Mm -hmm. Almost always the answer to why we can't have nice things is a a culture that celebrates individualism. Um, no social contract that says we should all take care of one another, um, and and then capitalism that really rewards um, decisions that do not benefit people. Right. I mean, and that's what that's what has contributed to you know again what's what's going on right now is like this this oppression and this sort yeah. of you should be doing it yourself mentality, pull yourself yes. up by your bootstraps yes. type of thing. Right. Um, that's, and we that's celebrate crazy. all those stories. We exactly. look at the individual story, and and as a social scientist, you know, we caution against that. We say anecdotal mm-hmm. evidence doesn't prove. Your, you know, you need you need numbers, you need data, you need to prove your hypothesis with social science, um, and you can always cherry pick examples um, to disprove the rule. There's always an exception to the rule, and that's what we do. We say, oh, Donald Trump is a self-made millionaire with only a small million dollar loan from his dad exactly you know there's the reality that you could probably have taken a million dollars in the 1970s thrown it into the stock market and been far wealthier than he is today yeah (laughs) so i don't know that that proves anything exactly and so Yeah. yeah so i guess you know i think we're still pretty far from you know being 
anything in comparison to like what you mentioned, like Italy or Germany or these European countries. Um, but at the same time, this this Black Lives Matter movement itself like proves that there is a clear, you know, difference in terms of status and, and class and opportunities that people have um, just based on, you know, their their ethnicity, the color of their skin, you know, visible or invisible, like that is a, a clear issue and it's something that we have to address. So it's definitely, you know, powerful what's been going on. And um, I would love to know like how that's been a conversation with your students, I guess, as a final point, and then also how corporations should address um, this whole movement right now, like in the workplace. Yeah, I think that, um, I think for our students, for young people, I think it is the, um, the reality that their voice matters. Um, and that their vote matters. And I keep looking at all of these protesters thinking, I hope somebody's registering you to vote. Um, but, but there's time for that. I think um, this movement is uh, important um, to, to reinforce the idea that your voice matters, that people are listening. Um, and I hope that we are, um, you know, I, I, since today's June 20th, yesterday was um, Juneteenth, mm -hmm. which is um, what started, um, you know, as a very small celebration in Texas um, and has now grown. And yesterday I saw more people than ever um, learning about our history that doesn't make it into the textbooks. Yeah. And so I often challenge my students um, to tell those stories. And in, in whatever lane they want to tell those stories, if you are an artist, tell the story through art. Um, you know, there are some beautiful, and, and I think if, if this um, pandemic um, shelter in place taught us anything, is that artists were what we craved. We binge watched. We missed theater. We, um, you know, wanted to see those live performances. Um, right. We wanted to go to concerts. We really did um, crave art. And, and there's, um, you know, a, a beautiful artist who um, is, is recreating masterpieces with um, diverse figures and black figures wow. and, and taking Michelangelo's um, creation picture and reimagining God as a black woman. Mm -hmm. surrounded by black angels and not Adam, but Eve as a black woman, mother of humanity. And it is inspiring and incredible. And I spend hours looking at her work because of course, when you think of religion, taking what surely was the story of a Middle Eastern man, Jesus, and making him a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white <laughs> Jesus that they hang on their, their church walls and worship. And you think, I wonder what their reaction would be to a child being gunned down in the streets by police if he reminded them of their Christ. Mm-hmm. I think that depiction in art is crucial. I tell my students who want to be playwrights and movie writers to talk to their grandparents and 
talk to their elders to get the stories that have not yet made it to the screen. Because that, I think, is crucial. If they want to be teachers, we have to, to use an ethnic studies term, decolonize the curriculum. We have to, and, and as a, I, I, I studied history as an undergraduate, um, and my favorite, favorite history is what we call alternate perspective history. Um, and that goes into the fictional world of alternate history. Um, but, but in the nonfiction world, it is um, what are the stories that aren't told? And when you look at history of being written by white men about kings and wars, which fascinate white men, you know, there's a comedian in America that jokes that um, his dad is clearly studying for a pop quiz on World War II because he studies every day on the History Channel um, and, and clearly all of these white old men are fascinated by war. Um, right. Women are not in the same way. Women want to hear the stories of families and women want to hear the stories of, of, of community building. And that is a fascinating way to read history. And one of the most fascinating, the Civil War is clearly a huge um, uh, sense of fascination in the United States. And then one of the best books I ever read about it was um, a very famous battle of Gettysburg that has been overwritten and overstudied and there's movies and books galore. But this was from the perspective of the families who lived in the town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, when the war came to town. And it was the idea that for days they hid in their homes as battle gunfire happened because there are no battlefields, as, as Europeans know well. There are no fields for war to take place in separate from communities. Right. And so when the war comes to your town, when it is fought in your forest, when it is fought on your field, when your house is taken over to be a command center, what that does to you as you desperately hope not to be tortured, as you desperately hope not to be killed, for women that you desperately hope not to be raped. Mm. Um, what happens after the battle leaves? There is no cleanup crew that comes and takes the dead bodies away when there are so many of them. And the, the, the image that stuck with me, and it is now <clears throat> 25 years after I've read this book, mm -hmm. they said that for years after, every time it rained, they were remembered, reminded of the battle because the grass would bleed red. Because oh. so many people had died on that field that their blood had soaked in. And so nothing could grow there. And their children who played in those fields would come back with severed and blown off arms and legs and fingers and toes. And that was the reality of growing up in Gettysburg in the 1870s, years after the Civil War had left, years after the historians had stopped paying attention, they still had to suffer. And so what are the stories that haven't been told? of the incredibly brave people of color who don't get to see their stories in the history books that are written. When those stories are told, 
Um, and, and again, I go back to the personal. My daughter was um, in kindergarten her first February, which we declare, you know, President's Month because Lincoln and Washington both share a birthday and we have some holidays there. So the mm-hmm. curriculum comes around to studying presidents. And she said to me in all innocence, Mama, when do we study the women presidents? We're all done with the men. And I thought, oh, wow, I gave you hope that you really didn't deserve to have because there aren't any. And you have grown up thinking, of course, women are going to be in the history books because I talk about them all the time. And these strong matriarchal families, you think of, um, you know, the, the, the Mexican-American culture and the El Salvadorian-American culture that are such strong women. Um, my Italian grandmother, who um, controlled everything in our family, she would come to visit and she would rearrange my mom's house. And we were just like, of course, and when she leaves, we'll put it all back. Um, <laughs> but it was just easier, the path of least resistance. Um, these incredibly strong women and the idea that we study the men's contributions without looking at the women. So I challenge my students, tell those stories, find those stories. Because what if we told those stories and you saw yourself? Um, You know, we we often talk to some of the, the, the women who are first, the people of color who are first, and we say, you know, how do you achieve something if you couldn't see it? How do you, Sally Ride, become the first woman astronaut in space? If you didn't have that as a role model, Mm. how much easier is it when we go back in history and bring those stories out? Because those people were always there. Those people of color were there. Those women were there. Those LGBTQ LGBTQ people were there. We need to tell those stories. And those stories are, are, you know, are often whitewashed by Hollywood. Gina Davis has a whole media center about the idea that these decision makers are, are making decisions that men and boys won't want to watch women. Are you kidding me? Movies with strong women are incredibly successful. Right. <laughs> Why not? Give people the opportunity to see those stories. Um, And and so I challenge my students to do that. Um, um, I think that that is what we will see more and more of. Um, And and those stories, you know, often um, art imitates life, but life imitates art. How much easier is it to imagine a Black president when you've already seen um, black presidents, Denzel Washington playing a black president on movies or TV. Right. Um, it, it can't be difficult to imagine, uh, you know, a woman president if we have women presidents in our art. Mm-hmm. So exactly. we have this amazing capacity, not just by running for office. Not everyone should run for office. Some of us have different roles to play. And, and some of us need to protest and some of us need to govern and some of us need to tell stories. Yeah, definitely. And I think that ties really well back into what you said with, you know, this whole movement, everything going on this year, 
despite, you know, the tragedies that led up to that, it's also provided a sense of community and a place to have these conversations. And it's global. So that's even better because that's what I've noticed with, you know, with my job and other people um, have told me at their jobs as well that this is becoming a part of the conversation. And it's incredible. Like even, you know, white people who, you know, normally wouldn't be so affected or worried about these issues because of their privilege are, you know, opening the history books and like trying to say like, okay, there's a gap here. You know, why don't we talk about this? And I think it's incredible. So definitely leaves us on a positive note, I guess, <laughs> despite yes, the negativity. Yes, yes. there's a lot of positive. There's a lot yeah, of positive. Um, exactly. You know, and I don't know how a historian is ever going to um, properly capture the, the insanity of 2020. Right. Um, maybe we'll have to have entire classes just on this first six months. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that there are years um, in, 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 in countries' histories, and 1968 is one of them for America, where just so much happened. The assassination of Martin Luther King and the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and the protests at the Democratic National Convention. And I think this will be one of those years that is studied. Um, and, and the nice thing about the end of 1968 is that Apollo 8 um, saw the Earth for the very first time. Um, and we saw that incredible globe that that, that was so small looking out the window mm-hmm. um, and we ended with hope. Um, December seems a really long time away from right now, but I hope that, I hope that we will end um, this year uh, with some of this hope. And I think the next generation of global leaders is active right now, mm-hmm. whether they are watching the protests or they are actively engaged these young people um, will be our global leaders and someday come together at a G8 or a G12 or whatever that international gathering is um, and and truly um, come together. And I think many of them will have the year 2020 as the inspiration to why they get involved. Exactly. Totally. Well, let me go into the closing question here since okay. we're almost out of time. Um, so This is since... one of my favorite parts of your podcast, so I'm <laughs> Thank excited. You. I'm glad you listened to the end. <laughs> I do. Um, okay. So yeah, it's just a random question. Don't overthink sure. it. And since you know, you're a political scientist who has you know, obviously looked through historic trends and things like that, it doesn't have to be political, but sure. um, I would sure. love to know what fad or trend do you hope comes back? Ooh, um, so there's uh, immediately, I think of all the ones I don't want to as a child of the 70s with pictures uh, that I would like to hide. I'm super happy I don't have Facebook memories to show either the hair or the clothing choices. Um, I'm very happy not to have the hair of the 1980s. uh, just the, 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 the global impact on the climate of the hairspray that we all used. Um, <laughs> so what do I want to come back? Um, gosh, uh, wow, folk music I miss. I love folk music. Mm-hmm. I'd like a little of that. Um, what other trend? I don't know. Um, fad. Um, gosh. I know it's a hard one. I can't think pet of rocks are nice. I liked pet rocks. Pet I felt rocks, like uh, so I could keep. Uh, yeah, that uh, that was about my level of responsibility uh, as yeah, a child. Yeah. So uh, I never had a pet rock <laughs> die on me. Um, uh, yeah, let's see yeah. what other fads. 
Um, gosh, I like ska. Is that a fad? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I mean, you got you got oh, a grunge. Few good ones uh, so I far. like some flannel. There you uh, go. Doc, Mart- Doc Martens and flannel is a nice trend. Yes. Yeah. I think that is coming back, which I, I also really like. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also I've I've been joking um, that uh, socially distanced campuses opening um, should really uh, look to the '90s. Um, I feel like we need some a guitar playing in the quad from a really far distance and playing hacky sack. Oh yeah. Oh my um, gosh. Hacky sack, super fun. And nice and socially distant. Perfect. Well, I'll write yeah. down those things and let's see if we can get that going. <laughs> sure. Somebody, awesome. somebody on Etsy had better be selling hacky sacks. I know. Oh my gosh, I love hacky sacks. <laughs> yeah. Right. Doesn't it make you want to go out in the park and play? Exactly. It's something you can yeah. do. It's it's social distancing. It's hygienic. Sort yeah. Of. <laughs> Perfect. A little kush, a little kush ball. We could throw yeah. those around. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, awesome. I would uh, just as a final note to anyone listening um, for any resources you might have, I I can link those in the show notes. So if you have any like news resources you can recommend or I don't know, anything else um, would be great. Um, If you're interested in social, um, sorry, local for Southern California, Mm -hmm. Voice of OC is a nonprofit, nonpartisan um, outlet that's amazing and wonderful. Uh, There's some really great uh, independent journalists. Uh, Gustavo Ariana works for the Los Angeles Times and has a great podcast. Uh, Gabriel San Ramon has a great podcast if you want to keep in touch with uh, uh, folks that are doing really good investigative work on the local level. Um, so yeah, they have really great, interesting podcasts and they'll keep you informed. Perfect. Great. Yeah. So I'll go ahead and link those. And thank you okay. so much again for your sure. time. This was, was incredible. Fun to spend the morning with you. <laughs> yes. Follow me on Instagram by searching for at GeoMonreal and check out my blog on GeoMonreal.com. Want to be on the next episode? Send an email to lifeisatrippodcast at gmail.com. Music from purpleplanet.com.